Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. Good morning. My name is Nikki Moles. I'll be reading John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26 out of the Christian Standard Bible. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making the baptism more, he was bat, sorry, Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. He left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus wore out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink for me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself and did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from the water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water that I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you've had five husbands, and the man now, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our father worshiped on his mountain, but you Jews say that the place of place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on the mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him, God is spirit, and those who worship him 
must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, we will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Nikki, thank you so much. As that was the longest passage anybody has had to come up and read, so she deserves a little bit of a round of applause. So if you're not there yet, you should be there uh, by now. John chapter 4. We're back in this series called I Am. We're back in the Gospel of John. Now, I want to remind you why we're in it, why we are studying the Gospel of John. There's many reasons you can approach the Gospel of John, but the reason why we're in it is because uh, there's a purpose to the Gospel of John, that we would really believe in the true Christ, that we would believe in Jesus. So really, the heart behind this is that I want us as a church family to share our same understanding of who Jesus is, and I want us to get to know him really, really well. I want him to have him say to us, I am blank. I do blank. I love fill in the blank, right? I want his word to guide us in all of our thoughts about who Jesus is as we follow him and multiply disciples of his now, one of the good things that's really helpful about why Jesus came was he came to fully reveal the heart of God and the nature of the kingdom of God. Jesus came to speak the words of God. He came to do the works of God. This is, this is what Jesus is doing. And so not only as we look at Jesus do we see who he is, we're looking at the very character of God as we study him, as we know him and enjoy him. We're enjoying God. And I'll tell you this that today's passage is one of the, probably the most radical passages into the heart of God's missional nature. It's one of the most radical views of God's heart and his reach in the kingdom. So I'll, I will tell you this, I'm just gonna go ahead and put some subtext. Uh, I am not gonna be able to speak on everything in this text. Uh, there are truths in this text, major doctrines that I am going to have to intentionally ignore today, which just aches my heart because I don't like that at all. And yet I am gonna focus on a, a few key things in this text. And we're gonna focus on those things that really show us the heart of the Father, show us the heart of Christ for his world and show us the nature of the kingdom. Now, this is a long story and, and it's, we didn't even finish it. There's still more to come. We're gonna cover it in two parts. We've got one through 26 this week and we've got the next passage next week. So better be here for both. Um, but if you can recall, what came before John chapter four? John chapter Three, hey, somebody's awake, somebody said three, all right, not a trick question, John chapter three. Jesus, in John chapter three, he has this growing ministry. He just had the most famous conversation with a religious leader named Nicodemus. He starts having this multiplying ministry where people are getting saved and getting baptized, and he leaves that. John four tells us he leaves that to go after one, to go after one woman, one soul. He's not after the crowds here, he's after the one. Now verse four says something, as you were probably reading it or hearing it, verse four in chapter four says something that maybe kind of stuck out to you. It says that he had to travel through Samaria. That was, it wasn't because his booking agent said that, that that's the way he had to go. 
It's not because that's the only way to get from where he was to Galilee. Uh, It's because he was being led to a divine appointment. He was being compelled by God's spirit in him to a divine appointment in Sychar. And so Jesus, uh, not going the traditional way around Samaria, but going through Samaria, gets to this town called Sychar. And there is Jacob's well, Jacob being Israel, being the father of the 12 tribes of, of Israel, right? And he's at this well. And, and when you picture Jesus, what do you usually typically picture? You picture a six-packed, strapped Jesus with really flowing hair, and he's, he's just nailing it, never exhausted, never tired. But what happens here? We see Jesus <laughs> cramped, cramped over the well saying, oh, man, I've got a cramp, oh, you say, I, I thought I designed these bodies better. <laughs> the fall messed this up, <laughs> right? No, he's, he's exhausted. This is the divine, heavenly God taking on the clothing of humanity and feeling every part of it, feeling the exhaustion that we feel from hard work. It's incredible. And so he's there, he's subjected himself to exhaustion in this travel and the heat, and, and, and he sits down next to this well, and he waits. And what happens? Verse 7, a woman of Samaria comes to draw water. A woman comes to the well. Now, now there should be some flags spiking up in your head because there's rich history with women and wells throughout the Old Testament, there's a lot of rich history, great significance in Jewish history with women at wells. It's the place where many Old Testament figures found their wives. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Think about it. Isaac found Rebekah at a well in a foreign land after he, she drew water for his servant sent to find him a wife, and they were married. Then Jacob found Rachel at a well in a foreign land, and he draws water for her, and they're married after Laban pulled a fast one and tricked him with Leah, and he married Leah, and then eventually he had to work seven more years, and then married Rachel. My goodness, that's a messed up family, right? And then later, you have Moses going to a well in a foreign land, meeting a woman, defending her against attackers, drawing water for her, and then marrying her. So apparently, ancient wells are like the modern-day Christian mingle. It's just like where people met. John, the author of this gospel, uses this rich history from Old Testament theology and Old Testament history to show us, not that Jesus is trying to get married, but to show us who the Messiah is willing to unite himself to. He's willing to unite himself to the Messiah, the promised one, the Christ. And who is it that he chooses? A woman of Samaria. It's what she's called. She's never given a name in anywhere in Scripture. And she comes out of the town with her water bucket to draw some water Did you notice what time of day she came out? What time was it? Noon. Who likes doing a lot of work out in the yard at noontime? Raise your hands. No, nobody. Because it's blazing hot. Right? 
So, so this, this woman's doing something different. Women would usually come out of the town in groups to come and collect water from the well early in the day for safety reasons and because it was much cooler. They avoided the, the heat of the midday. But not this woman. She's intentionally coming out by herself, purposefully risking the dangers of traveling alone, and she's coming out in the hottest temperatures of the day to draw her water. So like, right from the start, there's some observations that we can make about this woman. One of the first ones that we can make is that she's intentionally trying to isolate herself from others. That she's intentionally trying to avoid other people. Avoiding trying to do routine life with people. And so far, like her attempts to, to kind of keep herself distanced from others so she doesn't have to get close to anybody, her attempts have been successful. Oh, but not for long. This day was different. Jesus was waiting for her. And Jesus is at this well and he doesn't have a bucket, right? His, he's exhausted from the trip. His disciples have gone into town to buy food. And so what does he do? Verse seven, what you and I might normally ask for, like from a waitress, hey, could you give me something to drink? Could you, verse seven, give me a drink? You see, she was seeking to be alone. Jesus was seeking her. And he is breaking every social boundary, every religious taboo, and every cultural no-no to do it. And it blows this woman's mind. Look at verse nine. Paraphrasing, why on earth are you, a Jewish man, asking for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman. And just to make sure that you and I really understand the stigma here, the author of this gospel, John, inserts his own commentary and then, so that we can understand how crazy this is. Look, it says, for Jews have no association with Samaritans. They have no dealings with Samaritans. That was at the end of verse nine. As many of you know the disappointing history of humanity, right? Not only do we see racism, but we also see the subjugation of, of women throughout history. We see for a long period of time, women were treated at best as second-class citizens, most often just property. So not only is there that, but there's also this notion that she's a Samaritan woman. You see, Samaritans were a part of a region that were, was originally Jewish, but, but they were intermarrying with Gentiles many generations before this. And so what, what happened then is the Jewish purity was, was tainted with pagans, with Gentile uh, ethnicity, right? And so what happened is these Samaritans were considered half-breeds. They weren't full Jews, they were half-Jews. Their religion was trash, according to Jewish culture. In fact, Jews, purebred Jews, later on made a law about Samaritan women that honestly, it's just too appropriate for me to even mention in a public setting. But the gist of it is, Samaritan women are just untouchable. 
If you touch one, you will be unclean. So for Jesus to not only talk to her, but to ask for a drink, to drink from the same bucket that she drew water from, would be pretty similar to a a white man drinking from a colored fountain just about 60 years ago in our nation, devastatingly. Guys, this woman knew the extreme disdain that the Jews had for the Samaritans. But what this woman did not know is that Jesus cannot be made unclean. What this woman did not know and what you and I do know is that Jesus actually makes clean everything that he touches and he is about to touch this woman's life. He asks for a drink, she's confused. He says, well, if you knew this, you'd ask me and I would give you living water. What is living water, Pastor Scott? You're on point. Verse, uh, sorry, later on in John chapter seven, Jesus tells us specifically what this is. He's at the festival of shelters on the very last day. He stands up in the crowd and he shouts this. He says, uh, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, he will have streams of what? Living water flow from deep within him. And then look at what he defines it as. He said this about the spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the spirit for the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So we see here that the living water is the Holy Spirit, but in this text, in his conversation with the woman, he doesn't define it as that. He only describes this living water. So let's just look at how he describes the living water in this text. Four parts. First, it's a gift from God. Second, given by Jesus. Third, to satisfy the soul eternally. And fourth, will never run dry. I'm gonna have all parts of those on the screen. So let's start with first. It's living water is a gift from God. Can you say gift from God? It's a gift from God. We see that in verse 10. He says, if you knew the gift of God, which means this living water isn't something that you earn. It's not something that you try to work towards or merit by your goodness and righteousness. It is something that is freely given as a gift. I don't know how many of you expect that on Christmas morning you receive gifts because you've been good to the person who gave it to you for these many years. No, the the gift giver is gracious. It's undeserved. It's offered freely. It's a free gift. Secondly, we see in verse 10 that this living water is a gift from God given by Jesus. Can you say given by Jesus? Jesus says this, verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. So this living water is given by Jesus. Remember in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, he says, for the one whom God sent speaks God's words since he gives the spirit without measure. Jesus is the one who gives the spirit. He gives the living water. So the only the Messiah can grant us the presence of the Spirit of God, grant us the Holy Spirit because it's the Messiah's blood that purchased it for us. 
And it's his will to give it freely to those who ask. So it's living water is a gift from God given by Jesus. Thirdly, we see why. To satisfy the soul eternally. Can you say satisfy the soul eternally? Look in verse 14. He says, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never thirst again. Like, can you imagine if Deer Park came up with, with a kind of water substance that all you had to do just once Take a, take a sip, and your body is permanently hydrated for the rest of your life. Can you imagine that? How amazing that would be? I mean, imagine, right? Don't worry if you get cast away with Tom Hanks on some island somewhere. You don't got to be banging coconuts up against trees all day trying to get something to drink. You're hydrated. You've been hydrated for the last three years. You're good to go. Don't worry about having to worry about getting up in the middle of a pastor's sermon, which just seems to take way too long, so you have to go tinkle. You haven't tinkled in ages. I don't, yeah, that got weird. I mean, just imagine, though. Deer Park got to get on that, because that'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Now, we know it's impossible. Not a good business model either, right? Chief of finance of our church, obviously, thinking about that. <laughs> That's what Jesus is offering for your soul. He's offering for your soul something that will satisfy your soul permanently, forever, because you drank in this free gift of this living water. One commentator, I love the way he said it. He said, the living water Jesus gives bans thirst forever. So we see that living water, this living water is a gift from God given by Jesus to satisfy the soul eternally. And fourth, we see that this living water will never run dry. Can you say never run dry? Look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. That the water will become a well of water springing up in us for eternal life. It springs up. The water Jesus gives us itself turns into a source of life. It's not just some ration. It's not like, here, here's your bottle of living water. Up, oh, you gotta come back and get some more. No, no, no. Once this is, not Deer Park, once the living water of Jesus is in you, it becomes a source of living water that doesn't run out, but it runs over doesn't run out, it runs over. Literally, it's overflowing, it's welling up, and it leads to eternal life, knowing God for the rest of your life and for all of eternity. So what you and I get to know that this woman didn't find out probably until later was that the Holy Spirit is this in the Christian's life. The Holy Spirit is this. The Holy Spirit is, is living water. The Holy Spirit is a gift from God given by Jesus to satisfy the soul eternally and he'll never run out. Never run dry. Guys, I don't know about you, but I want that water. And I praise God that I've got it. 
And I've experienced and am perpetually experiencing this. But I think we need to pause here for a second. I think we need to pause here for a second and make another observation about this. This comes almost immediately, apart from one little narrative, almost immediately after Jesus' conversation with who? Nicodemus. All right, y'all are nailing it today. After his conversation with Nicodemus. And, and I think it would serve us really well to, to look at Nicodemus and look at the Samaritan woman and just kind of contrast them. Let's, let's do that real quick. Nicodemus was a Jewish man, so that was, that was elite. She was a Samaritan woman. That was low. He had a name. She goes unnamed. He was a well-respected, religious, learned, powerful, orthodox, theologically trained leader. She was a rejected, immoral, unschooled, marginalized, pagan outcast. And yet Jesus offers living water. He offers Holy Spirit and eternal life to both. And each one of them shows you and I the missional heart of God's grace. You see, Nicodemus shows us that no one is beyond the need for God's grace, while this Samaritan woman shows us that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Can you grasp that? You have the the most learned, the the best human that could probably ever exist in Jewish culture, and he needs regeneration. And you have this woman who's socially outcast and so covered in her own sin and shame, and she needs living water, and he offers it to both. Because no one is beyond the need for or the reach of God's grace. I mean, look at it. Jesus is willing to get his hands dirty He's not constrained by these man-made taboos or these social boundaries that, that say certain places aren't worth going to or certain people aren't worth going after or having them be a part of this in the kingdom of God. No, no, no. Jesus offers all of God's grace to a woman no one would even give the time of day to. Guys, you gotta listen to what I'm saying. Nothing puts you outside of the need for or the reach of God's grace. Guys, you gotta hear me when I say this. No matter your past, no matter what you're currently struggling with right now in this moment, nothing puts you outside of the need for or the reach of God's grace because he's offered an abundance of living water. He doesn't run out of it and he's purchased it with his blood for you. But is this woman understanding that? No, 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 she's, she's thinking physical, just like Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus when Jesus said you have to be born again? What was his thought? I don't know if a womb's big enough for me to climb back up in there. Like that's, that's what he said. I'm not trying to be scandalous or anything. That's what he said. He's not wrong. I probably would have said the same things. She's sitting there saying, oh, you silly sir. You don't even have a bucket in the wells deep. How are you gonna do this? How are you gonna get me this living water? And yet the conversation eventually gets to the point where she does ask for it. She says, yeah, give me this living water. But did you notice that she expresses something more? 
She says, yeah, I'll I'll take this water so I don't have to get thirsty again and have to keep coming out here. You see, that just for us sounds like an inconvenience remedied of having to go get water every day. One of these days we can just pipe it into the house, right? Like that's amazing anyways. But Jesus hears something more. Jesus hears from her, I don't like coming out in public like this. If I could avoid having to be around anyone, that'd be great. You see, Jesus knows that there's something in her life that makes it really painful for her to come to a place where all the women in the town gather together and they chat. This is where things get really awkward between the two of them. And it might get awkward here. You see, Jesus presses in on what can easily be described as the deepest wound in this woman's life. Jesus says, oh, you, you want living water? Okay, verse 14, or 16, go call your husband. Go call your husband, get your husband, bring him back here. I'll give you both this living water. And what's her response? I don't have a husband. (laughs) You know how you can tell if something has deeply wounded you? You distort the truth or tell a half-truth to cover the whole truth. You see, she says, I don't have a husband. That's only half of the truth. We do the same thing too. Hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. Yeah. How's this, how's this been going? Oh, it's getting by. We're, we're, we're all right. Yeah, I'm good. How have you been in, in your fight against that temptation? Oh, yeah, doing great. Haven't given in for a while. We may get by with misleading one another, but you can't mislead Jesus. He knows the truth of the condition of your soul. He knows what you're most ashamed of and why, and he's eager to show you why you're always so thirsty. Look at, I mean, he calls her out. He calls her to the table, pulls the rug right out from under her. Verse 17 and 18, hey, yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah, sure, you're right in saying you don't have a husband. Yeah, but, but you've had five And the guy that you're living with, you're sleeping with now, he's not your husband, you're not married to him. So sure, in a sense, you're right, you don't have a husband. Now, we're about to have a pretty tough conversation. I'm not leaving. I want to pretend like we're at a coffee shop or you're in my living room. So I'm just going to have a seat. Because I think we make a mistake at this point. I think we assume some things about her story. Um, I, think, I think that we assume the worst, which is maybe in our nature. The reality is we don't know what happened in her past. We don't know the circumstances of those previous marriages. Perhaps she was widowed five times. 
Maybe that's why the six guys like, oh, this, ain't, this marriage thing ain't happened. Five guys have done it. It's not worked for them. <laughs> Maybe some of them died. Maybe some of them divorced her because they were unfaithful to her. Or maybe she was unfaithful to them. I mean, it could be that she just got in with some really bad guys and they just used her and abused her and cast her out. I think regardless, right? Regardless, this does explain her extreme efforts to tuck away and to isolate herself. It explains why she hides from society. Because in a sense, she is just overwhelmed with shame. And I don't think most people who've had a pretty easy life know how embarrassing and shameful it can be when you've been abused or neglected. She is overwhelmed with shame either because of the things that have been done to her or what she has done. We know now that she's not in a godly covenant marriage. She's just, she's not in it. So we know that there's already adultery here. But what, like we gotta ask the question, what, why would Jesus press on this? Why would he push here? We know it doesn't get brought back up again. He doesn't, he doesn't bring up her adultery. He doesn't bring up her past ever again in their conversation. He doesn't go anywhere with it. He just mentions it and then it goes. Why? Well, we know he didn't bring it up to find closure. We know he didn't bring it up to condemn her because he doesn't. We know he didn't bring it up to just shame her and make her feel terrible about herself. He brought it up to expose the deep thirst that she never even knew she had. Because I, I, I'm not familiar with this by experience personally, but I'm pretty sure that no one goes through sexual relationships with six different people without either starting thirsty or ending thirsty. Either way, this woman has an unquenchable thirst in her soul, a deep emptiness within her that is expressing itself in broken and sinful behaviors and appetites, and it's so painful and it's so shameful that she just, seals it all up. She locks it all down. She hides herself away. She doesn't want even this guy at the well to know anything about her. Unfortunately, he knows everything about her. But she locks it all down. No one gets in. Nothing gets out. And it's just all hidden away in darkness. But you see, darkness is light to Jesus. And what we try to keep in the ignorance of darkness, Jesus can expose fully. And it's in mercy he does. You see, what, what I think 
what I think is the truth of this passage that for me exposes Jesus' heart, God's heart and the nature of his kingdom is this truth and it's a truth that I think we all ought to, to embrace, to love, to be challenged by. It's that God's greatest works are in satisfying our greatest thirsts. Those areas that God wants to work most greatly in are the areas where you seem to be the most thirsty. So like we, we drink in pornography or we drink in one night stands or we, or we drink in certain relationships with particular benefits but with no covenant marriage or relationship defining it and we think that those things satisfy our souls. They satiate the thirst but all that happens is we find ourselves thirsty again and again and again. Or, 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 or we drink in, like this woman does, isolation. We drink in this idea that if we hide away from everyone, then, 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 then we're not going to have so much pain. It's going to deaden the pain of our shame from either our sexual promiscuity or our being sexually or physically abused. Either way. We believe that, we drink in this idea that it's better to be alone, it's better that nobody knows only to find out that that locks you in the room alone with all of your shame. Or, or we try to drink in just these empty platitudes when a loved one passes away. We drink them in like they're, they're Gatorade. Oh, they're in a better place. Up, oh, heaven gained another angel. Only to find out that those platitudes hardly do anything. To, to fill the gaping void in your soul. I think this one might hit home for a, a few more of us. We drink in the appearance of being successful and having it all together whenever we try to make this post that makes it look like I'm mom of the year, or I'm dad of the year, right? Or I'm husband of the year, or I'm wife of the year, or I'm human of the year, right? We put up these posts, we, we try to maintain this facade of success and this facade of having everything together all the while we are just incredibly exhausted from the extreme busyness that we've thrust upon ourselves and we're feeling like we're never able to keep up with everything on our plate. But I have everything together. Are you meeting yourself in this woman today? It's one of the evidences that you have yet to drink in this living water or that you're quenching its spring. One of the evidences is that you are unstable like this woman, always moving from one thing to the next, seeking to fill the void that Jesus' promises that Jesus promises only he can fill with his living water. I don't, 
I don't care what it is. You, you can move through sexual partners like she did, or, or you can move through friends, or you can move through jobs, or churches, or hobbies, or hairstyles, or wardrobes, or cars, or locations, or homes, thinking that it's going to be the next thing that is the elixir that satisfies the thirst that your soul has. All the while, you're never able to actually find a, a deep contentment in the identity that Christ has given you. And satisfied simply every day with his ever springing water of life with the fellowship of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, it's in the areas of your deepest thirsts that God wants to do his greatest works. And I mean, it's not hard to notice, is it? It's not, it's easy to ignore, but not hard to notice how often Jesus drives right to the heart of people's greatest sin, their greatest hopelessness, their greatest guilt or despair or need. Every time he goes right after their greatest thirst. It shouldn't surprise us either. Because if Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, of course he's going to deal with our sin and our brokenness because he's aiming to quench the thirst. He's aiming to satisfy our souls with his salvation, to gratify our groans with his grace, to quench our thirst with the greatest treasure, that is God himself. Hmm. And just when the water is made available for us through the invitation to come and receive it from Jesus, through the accountability and correction and encouragement that comes from the body of Christ, instead of drinking in this living water, what do, we, what do we typically do? What do we tend to do? What this woman does, she deflects. She gets exposed and she deflects. And what does she deflect to? Doctrine. She's a smooth cat about it too, right? She, she just went right for it. She ignored the conversation Jesus wanted to have and she goes straight for a doctrinal is, issue. Like, isn't it a lot easier for us when we get together to not really talk about how we're doing personally and what we're struggling with and rather talk about problems in the church? Sorry if I'm stepping on toes. It is so much easier to talk about theological strains or doctrinal issues or problems in the body of Christ than it is just to say, hey, I'm not doing well. Here's where I'm thirsty. Instead, we disengage, we deflect so that we don't have to have our greatest thirsts exposed because goodness, if that person knew that I messed up or was struggling in this way, what would they think? In fact, even, even after Jesus has a really incredible conversation with this woman about the doctrine of worship and, and about how worship is gonna be available to all people uh, in all places, not constrained to one building or one people, like it's an incredible truth, we'll have to talk about it later, but, 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 but even after that, she still deflects and she says, well, when the Messiah, the Christ shows up, he'll explain everything to us. And she's just trying to get out of this conversation. 
But Jesus doesn't let her, and he tells her, I, the one that you're talking about, I'm him. I'm the Messiah. As Jesus says, I am him. I am the Messiah. In other words, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the living water. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am enough for you. I am what your soul needs. What you're looking for, you're looking at Stop looking everywhere else. Stop hiding away in your sin and your shame. Just come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come. If you're thirsty, come. If you're hungry, I will give you food and drink for your soul that'll satisfy you forever. Are you thirsty this morning? Brothers and sisters, Jesus is inviting you. Come and drink and live. And you come knowing that God is going to work in those areas where you're most thirsty, those areas where you have the most shame, the most doubt, the most guilt, the most pain. So you better bring them with you when you come to the foot of the cross. Don't leave them behind or bury them somewhere. He wants to deal with them directly. And I promise you, as you bring them out into the light, out of the darkness of shame and ignorance and you bring them into this place that ought to be safe because we're all broken and all thirsty, there you'll find the free gift of living water and you will never thirst again. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.